Jonathan Farmer, who is among uh, many other things, a prolific and deeply thoughtful poetry critic, uh, said that he is very cautious about speaking ill of poems. And particularly, he's, he's, he's cautious about wholly dismissing a work of poetry because, as he says, you know, if, if he finds something of value in a poem, if he takes pleasure in it, if he responds to it in some way that he thinks has meaning uh, or worth, then that's something that he can testify to. That's something he can describe to others and suggest that they might also find. But what he can't do is say that nobody ever could find anything of value in this work. And so, you know, he has a hard time uh, really sort of condemning or dismissing uh, works of poetry. And, and this is because at heart, Jonathan is a, a thoughtful, kind, prudent, reasonable person who wouldn't say mean, dismissive, unnecessarily harsh things about a fellow contemporary poet's work. And lucky for all of you, uh, I'm not any of those nice things that Jonathan is. So uh, I will. The first the first episode of this that I recorded, this, this um, silly fucking podcast that I can't believe I'm still doing. Uh, the first episode was not that I recorded was not the first episode I released because it was so harsh that I, I felt I should hold back a little bit. And so I, I put it out third after giving you a little sense of what I was up to so that by, I figured by then you, you knew what you were getting. But in that episode, I had some hard words for Guggenheim fellow, Fulbright scholar, and MacArthur genius, Ben Lerner, darling of the literary establishment. I, I said some, some cruel thing. Maybe not cruel. I think I, I think I said his book, The Hatred of Poetry, was dog shit. I think that's what I said. I, I think it is. I don't think that was inaccurate. But what I also said was that I believed that he had walked away from poetry. And his last collection of poetry was published in 2010. And then, you know, after that in 2016, he published a book that was just the three previous books all collected together. And so it really seemed that he had he'd gotten, you know, he'd, he'd, he had met with a lot of success in his, his three uh, books of fiction. So it seemed that he'd really moved on to that. And on that point, I, it turns out, was wrong. Because just this month, Ben Lerner is releasing another book of new poems. Uh, I don't have it yet. It is called Gold Custody, I believe. And it's a collaboration with installation and or conceptual artist Barbara Bloom. I have no idea what that will look like, but I have some idea of what might be inside because the New York Review of Books, which has always been a very uh, welcoming uh, venue for Lerner, has published a few of his poems uh, very recently. One of them, just this month, in the July 20, 
second issue, which means, you know, as I'm recording this, this is, uh, this is in the future. So I, I, I read, I read these three poems. Two of them were, if I remember prose poems, which, you know, I have to say, I, I won't call it a cowardly move. Um, there are, there are prose poems. There are prose poems I like. Hard not to enjoy Joe Wenderoth, Russell Edson, Eliot's Hysteria, Baudelaire's Paris Spleen. I mean, good Lord. I mean, yeah, there, there are plenty of good prose poems. Uh, Cynics, The World Doesn't End. There, there are, there's no shortage of them. These weren't brilliant, I will say, but I was sort of more interested in the long poem in, I won't call it verse, it, in broken lines. He had, a, he had a long three-part poem in broken lines. This is a 122-line poem, I believe, called The Lights. And I, I thought I would, you know, give it my attention, see what I was missing. So uh, this poem, The Lights, it's, it's in, broken into three parts, though, except for the last part, there doesn't seem to be that much meaning to the, the, the section breaks. It's broken into a number of stanzas, or semi-regular stanzas, you know, 10 to 13 lines and three sections. But uh, throughout, the lines and sentences seem to be a kind of collage or cut-ups or jumble of a few different narratives, a few different... It's almost as if you wrote a hand... You know, you wrote two, three, maybe more paragraphs about a number of different topics occasionally overlapping and then he jumbled them up into lines and sentences and then he laid these out on the page uh sort of according to whim so just to give you a sense i'll read you the first two stanzas as it were so you have or most of them so you have some sense of kind of what what we're dealing with here this is from the lights by ben lerner in the july 22nd 2021 issue of the New York Review of Books. Slow-moving objects flying in groups, lights in the trees, like those minutes before the storm when we stood at Kyle's wedding looking up. A decision has to be made about taking shelter. Too high to be birds, too slow to be conventional aircraft, her white dress stood out against the dark gray sudden drop in pressure, Lights in the trees, slow moving. The radar, we shut the radar down and recalibrated to rule out ghost tracks. No notable exhaust from a known propulsion system. In other words, I want to know what it would do to the art if they are not Russian. What I mean by erratic is unknown sources. A beautiful ceremony because the wall cloud visible behind them has to be made. I was in Paris once with Bobby, who was mourning his mother and filming public sculptures. Every few hours he would, in tears, and I would hold him. So that's most of the first two stanzas. Uh, it seems to be that there's a, you know, there's a, a, a paragraph throughout, or a, there's a through line sort of having to do with the footage of unknown aerial phenomena. I think that's the new acceptable initialism, UAP rather than UFO, at which the U.S. government has recently and officially shrugged its shoulders 
there seemed to be something like maybe flying saucers that may or may not be something anybody can account for. And he, he meditates on this. He meditates on the, you know, in vague terms on the physics of it and on the, the history of it. And then there's also a sort of a story or memory about some social event, a wedding, and then also this trip to Paris. And he ends up thinking aloud for a while about what it's like as a dude to hug another dude, which is something to write about, I guess. It's a lot of non sequiturs, though. I mean, it's really hard to say they're non sequiturs because there's really nothing, there's no sequitur and nothing really follows, but there is a sense that we will eventually get back around to the topic at hand, though not necessarily with any consistent or coherent sentence or line or stanza or poem structure to support the thoughts or the observations. You know, in the second section, he he drifts into a couple other topics, so he seems kind of to circle back to the UFOs. And then, and then there is a kind of a, a little bit of a coherent moment where we, we get to, you know, he talks some about the pandemic and about being out here. There's a we are not alone with being out for the first time since the pandemic. And he capitalizes the O and out to make sure that we understand that there's, you know, in the first line, he's talking about being alone as in alone in the universe. And then in the second line, he's talking about being alone among people going out for the first time since the pandemic. So there's a, you know, he wants us to know that the collages are overlapping with meaning in this moment. And then we, he says, I'm sure they are almost all military, but when the neighbor cut my hair, she was masked. We were outside. She told me her cousin had been abducted and treated very gently, that they have to make contact somehow. They are waiting for us to evolve. Gray hair on the pavement among the cherry blossoms. And I said, I want to be honest with you. Yes, you do sound crazy. I want to believe your story because there is love in it. Once I was in Paris and my friend's mom was in the trees, he didn't see, and that there he stops making sense again. But you know, I thought that there was a there was a little a little scene there where there's a kind of a nice collision of perspectives and uh, tones, and you know, we get a little image to ground us: the gray hair on the pavement among the cherry blossoms, and a sense that he's speaking plainly and without pretension for once with the person who's cutting his hair. And, you know, there seems to be almost a moment of genuine communication there before he, he drifts, back, drifts back into his Parisian recollections. And then in the third section, and this is where I think, this is where I think I, I you know, I don't want to say, I won't totally dismiss this as, as poetic work. I won't dismiss it as poetic work entirely. The last section is an anaphoric litany. And it is a litany of clauses relating to the, the possible alien visitors. And it, and it sort of rounds up a lot of the, the elements of the previous fragments. So we get Kyle's wedding again. We get the cousin mentioned by the, uh, by the, by, you know, by the woman cutting the hair. Uh, so there's, there is a, a little, it's not a summing up, but it is a, an enumeration of a lot of the, the, the themes or 
not even themes necessarily, but like the, the images, the parts, the fragments, the shards from all of the previous parts of the poem. And there's a little bit of, you know, anaphora, as every mediocre public speaker knows, is the easiest way in the world to build rhetorical momentum. And it works pretty well, you know? It works pretty well. Uh, and if you if you can manage tone and you have a crisp sense of diction, then it can have a a pleasing effect. And I think that, you know, the, 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 ana the anaphora, the litany at the end of this poem has a sort of a pleasing effect. Read a part of it. Well, here, I'll just, I'll read the last section because it's pretty good. It's the last section has something to it. So that they are here among us, that they love us, that we invited them in without our knowledge into our knowledge, its cavities that we have asked to be destroyed, that they are deliberating in us, that they are part of our sexual life, that they are baffled by us, gentle to our cousins, that they take the form that forms can be taken up, that the form is reflected in the sen, the rim of the glass at Kyle's wedding, that they are patient to the point of non-existence, that they can withstand forces, no human pilot, that they have arts, that they are known to our pets, that if you put a pet down, they are beside it without judgment, that they smell vaguely of burning paper, that to meet them would be to remember meeting them as children, that they are children, that the work of children is in us, that they are part of our sexual life, that they are reading this, that they are baffled, but can make out the shape of a feeling to which they assign no number, gender, that they have sources of lift, and then a hard break. Uh, the sources of lift presumably referring to the thus far inexplicable aerial phenomena. So there is something of a poetic, uh, of a lyrical thrust here a lyrical sally and you know i think there's i think learner is smart i think he has a good vocabulary <laughs> i think he uh knows how to build sentences though he often chooses not to <laughs> i think that he has a a taste for pleasingly various uh collage i think that he knows how to flatter his readers. And I think what he's done here really is that he's, he's collected a bunch of material, um, personal material, public material, sharply contrasting subject matter with a few little overlapping portions, frag fragments, and a scene or two. The scene really helps. Boy, a scene can really help a poem, a lyric poem, a meditative poem especially. And then he's even got a sort of a loose-ish structure, and he's got a pretty good title, The Lights, right? Which obviously refers to the, the UFOs, but also can bring in a handful of other things and, and is a sort of a suggestion of sight or understanding, revelation of some kind. And then he ends with this pretty effective litany. This, you know, it's, it is a, it's nothing new, formally speaking, but it's... It's pretty effective. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. I think he he plays a little too, he gets a little too cutesy with the the broken syntax in the last section. But you know, as a as a loose sketch of an idea, I think it's not terrible. I think that as it turns out, I have to admit that Ben Lerner does have some idea of what a poem is. I think he does have some idea of how a poem works, of what a poem might look like, of all the kinds of things that a poem might include. And I think now the only thing there's left for Ben Lerner to do is 
sit down, scoot in his chair, polish his glasses, sharpen his pencil, crack his knuckles, and actually bother to write a fucking poem. Matthew Buckley Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. I just want to start this episode by saying thank you. Thank you to all of you for listening, of course. But thanks also, you know, the show has had some really lovely reviews in uh, Apple Podcasts and a bunch of new ratings this week. So I, I really appreciate that. I know it is uh, a little annoying to go out of your way to go do that, um, but it does mean a lot. And it means also that more people will get exposed to the show uh, for good or ill. Thank you also to everybody who made a recommendation in person or by whatever medium to somebody who you thought might like the show. I am grateful. I, you know, I was thinking after last week's episode about, I talked a little bit about the question of leaving things unresolved and it occurred to me that something that has started to happen in recent weeks, not, not, I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily, but I, I have found that in putting together an episode, I, I tend to, I, I start to think of it as having a kind of a, a completeness, you know, I've, well, I've knocked out contests. I've done, I've done my poetry episode. I've done my uh, poetry voice episode. I've, I've, I've finished up the sublime. And, you know, while some of these obviously are, uh, topics that, that permit more examination than others, I do want to, so, I mean, part of the truth is that I really just imagined this being like an eight part or 10 part little, uh, limited series in which I would, you know, address a handful of topics, maybe bring on a couple guests to talk uh, with about them and then call it a day. And at least for the moment, there does seem to be still more fun stuff to get into. So I, I am going to keep the show going. But what that also means is that I may, I may leave the episodes a little more open-ended. You know, I, I probably still will end up having a, a semi-obsessive theme of the week to some extent, but I don't want to I want to allow for a little bit of fun non sequitur as well. So I, I have had a, a particular problem in my head this week that, it, it, you know, partly it came to mind when I read the ridiculous Ben Lerner almost poem that I spoke about a moment ago. Uh, there were a few other pieces I read. I've been really, I've been chewing over the idea of coherence uh, and obviously incoherence necessarily as well in poetry specifically, but in, in art uh, more broadly. I, I probably will get into that a little more later in this episode, but I, it may be something I 
dip into in next week. And then, I mean, I, I know that I'm not going to be able to talk about all of the articles I would like to address or all of the works of art I would like to address in one week. So maybe I will just let that be a an ongoing thread. Um, and as with any of these other topics, please do write in with your own thoughts. I got some really good correspondence this week from some listeners. So I wanted to, to talk about that a little bit. And it may, we'll see where we go from there because there's actually some pretty good meat to slice into here. Uh, start, I started, I'll start with Cameron. Cameron is, if you remember, to my knowledge, the show's youngest listener. I sort of hope the show's youngest listener at 17. It is a little terrifying to think that somebody that young is listening to all of this nonsense, but Cameron has been and wrote a really thoughtful note defending Walcott's diction in 60 years after. You remember a couple episodes ago, I read his poem from White Egrets called 60 Years After, in which he runs into an old, almost girlfriend sort of love of his youth in an airport. They're both quite old, and he is confronted with the memory of their youth and their never consummated love, as well as the reality of old age. And he ends the poem with a with a curious image. He says, now the silent knives from the intercom went through us. And I talked a little bit about why that didn't quite sound right to me, or rather it sounds great, but probably if it's something coming from an intercom, it is not silent, but rather invisible. And invisible knives, of course, sounds like shit, whereas silent, silent knives sounds great. Cameron had a further defense of Walcott's choice. Uh, I'll, I'll just read a little bit from Cameron's email because it is pretty well put, I think. And then I may say another word about it. So this is Cameron. By the way, in I am almost certainly going to fumble some pronouns, not in Cameron's email, but in talking about this, simply because... In, I think Cameron may be in, from the UK. In the, the States, Cameron is a, a unisex name. And so I, do, I don't know what gender Cameron uses or has. So I will say something dumb, I'm sure. Though, if you listen to this podcast, that will not be a surprise. Here is Cameron on Walcott's poem. About the silent knives, I wondered whether the line was a clever insinuation of waiting. The intercom is quite literally silent, or at least silent for Walcott, in that it is not yet stated that it is time for boarding his specific flight and consequently leaving the woman he once loved, or at least once believed he loved, in a boyish kind of way. Therefore, since the intercom hasn't given him an excuse to leave, he is forced to stay with the woman and experience all the pain of the juxtaposition of her crumpled flower now with the moments of the so-called past. Yeah, I'm going to skip a little bit ahead. Then uh, Cameron says, so the intercom's silent knives are quite literally its silence, impeding Walcott from leaving and therefore forcing him to experience the pain of the poem. 
I will admit then that it is odd for Walcott to give the intercom attributes an implied action when in reality the line is about its inaction, but I think the metaphor enhances the poem. That's a really smart, well-reasoned apologia. I certainly can't refute it. I certainly can't prove that it's not the case. And I, I as I think I've said before, I, I tend to believe that what really matters is the effect of the poem rather than the author's intention past, you know, within reason. I don't think, though, that this totally rings true to my experience of reading it, partly because it is such a an emotionally it is such an emotionally tender, expressive moment. And there is something a little cerebral about the interpretation that the intercoms are causing pain by not announcing that it is time for Walcott to leave and therefore giving him an excuse not to be around the woman. Partly because he, he does seem really to want to be around the woman, but also partly because there's uh, there sort of there's at least one or two degrees of cognitive removal between the immediate pain and pleasure of nostalgia in her presence and the mechanism by which Cameron would have the intercom's silence cause a special kind of agony. More specifically, though, I think that this is probably not exactly what's happening in the poem because of Walcott's use of the word the. He says, now the silent knives from the intercom went through us. If he were referring to an indefinite silence, cognitively charged silence of which we had no reason previously to be aware at all, right? As would be the case necessarily with something that was not happening, but was happening only in his mind. The, he could simply say, now silent knives from the intercom went through us. But he refers to them in a, with a definite article, which does, however slightly, suggest to me that there is something already there. There is a thing to be referred to already there in the room with him that we would recognize from having been in an airport before. So again, it is a really smart and exceedingly well articulated argument. And all I can say is it doesn't quite ring true to me, but fuck if I know. Uh, Cameron is clearly a hell of a lot smarter at 17 than I uh, am perhaps even now. I'll also say that Cameron mentioned, and I don't know if this is correct or not, but based on previous correspondence, I believe that Cameron has just published, I'm going to use the plural awkwardly, their first poem, I think, which is a pretty big deal. If not this particular poem, then, then another poem, I think, was, was recently Cameron's very first poem accepted for publication. At any rate... Cameron sent a link to this poem, Milton with Galileo, 1638, in Autumn Sky Poetry Daily. And it's a pretty good little poem. It's really smart and measured and sort of moving in this very understated way, while also being you know, remarkably learned. Again, uh, I, I was impressed, and it is 
maddening to think that a 17 year old wrote this. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes because it's, it's really worth something. And because fuck, you know, you got to celebrate. This is a, your first poem published. It's a big deal. So congratulations, Cameron. Thank you so much for writing in and, uh, Godspeed. Good Lord. Good Lord. You're on the ball. Okay, so I also got a really kind and thoughtful note from Ethan. Let me pull up Ethan's note real quick because Ethan uh, had some nice things to say, but also had some questions. And I may refer some of his questions to y'all. Ethan said, uh, thank you, blah, blah, blah. I have been writing poetry for 13 years, but I never stopped to get a solid foundation in formal poetry. I only took one poetry class in college, and my current job is about as far away from poetry as one can get. Uh, however, I find myself leaning toward formalism more and more now. Where do you recommend such a poet as I am go to train themselves further in received forms, meter, etc.? I gave a, a definitely unsatisfactory answer to Ethan, suggesting... Uh, Paul Fussell's uh, Paul Fussell's poetic meter and poetic form, as well as John Hollander's sort of silly but also virtuosic and delightful and amazing rhymes reason. Which, if you don't know it already, rhymes reason is a a handbook of poetic forms in which he explains every individual form by doing it. That is, he explains a sonnet in a sonnet, he explains a villanelle in a villanelle, he explains a guzzle in a guzzle, and so on. It's, as I said, a little ridiculous, but just a blast to read. So I suggested those two books. I also, I have not read, but Shane uh, McRae recently recommended All the Funds and How You Say a Thing by Timothy Steele, which based on the source I, I expect is really good. I don't know, though I haven't read it. I, I also recommended that Ethan check into erratosphere because of course it's never quite enough just to learn from a manual you, you need readers and listeners and people to respond to and scan you know all prosodists scan a little differently so you need some some real live readers if you're gonna master meter and rhyme so i recommended that he go on eratosphere and try things out there i i hope that all of those were good recommendations i just know that they were not adequate so if you have further recommendations specifically for books manuals sources for meter form rhyme alliteration you know specifically for sound-based form in poetry there, there are a lot of really good books on poetry more broadly, but just specifically on this question of, of form. If you have any specific recommendations, send them in and I will pass them along to Ethan. I, Another part of what Ethan said, though, got me thinking about a slightly bigger question. So he said that he had had very little training in poetry, formal or otherwise, or rather uh, in in uh, meter or otherwise. And I read a book, I just finished a book this past week, a novel, I'm gonna be interviewing the novelist soon, but in it, the main character drops out of an MFA program. And while it is a cause of some anguish, especially in the moment, there are, there are a lot of other things that happen in the book. And, and of all of them, that really 
doesn't have such a terrible effect. That the the the, the ultimate consequences of dropping out of the MFA seem to be sort of minimal, and it it got me thinking about what it is that an MFA is actually good for, and I I mean this a little bit mockingly, but also seriously. I have I have two MFAs, <laughs> uh, absurdly. And I think I'd got a lot out of both of them, but not really nothing of any practical use. And I think I think the, the MFA is nominally a a terminal degree, but I don't think anybody really considers it anything like a professional degree. I certainly don't think you you know you can expect to get a job as a result of having an MFA. So you know, dropping out of your MFA, especially as the character does, toward the end of the program, really may be almost indistinguishable in its effect on your life from completing the MFA. But I do think that there are some things one gets from an MFA. And this comes up most, I will say, when I hear from people, either for this podcast or in uh, slush piles, when I hear from people who do not have MFAs talking about their lack and worrying about that. So I thought I would just say a little bit about what I think, honestly, one gets from an MFA because it is not nothing, but it is also not necessarily that much. One thing, very obviously, is time. First of all, by the way, it, it, I think this goes without saying. I think everybody already knows this, but just in case you happen not to have heard this from anyone else before, as a public service announcement, do not ever get an advanced degree in the arts if you have to pay for it. I mean, there's like maybe an extremely, extremely small number of exceptions, including perhaps the Yale School of Drama. But basically, if you have to pay for an arts degree, don't get it. That said, if you get an MFA, you don't have to pay for it. You get some time to write. And that's something, though often, at least in my case, you are still in your early mid-20s and you are a worthless wastrel and fuck fool and nincompoop. So you will do very little with that time. But you get some time. You meet people. And that's big. And that's, that's I think, really the main thing. You meet people. In some programs, those people include important professional connections. But I think the number of programs in which you get real connections as a result of, of doing an MFA, I, I think that's a really small number of programs. I think for the most part, you you meet people you like as a reader, as uh, another writer. You learn things from a teacher. You, you have some good friendships. And I mean, in my case, I met my now wife in the MFA I attended. So I would say I, I met some lovely teachers and some of them I still keep up with, but really the main, the people I met who really matter to me as a result of doing the MFA are peers. And, and not really, there's been very little uh, uh, connection peddling or uh, manipulating as a result of that. Mostly it's just been a lot of very good conversations. So time and friends uh, are, are not, those are not outcomes to be sneered at.
but they don't have a lot directly to do with writing. So when I think, and I'm, I'm going to focus just for a minute on poetry, because I think it does differ. I think the, the different genres work out differently. But when it comes to poetry specifically, if I think about the poems I read from people who have MFAs, and the poems I read from people who don't have have MFAs, and I, I read a fair amount of, of both, especially in uh, the slush pile, the biggest difference is not quality. The, the, the poets who have MFAs are no less likely to be bad than poets who don't have MFAs. I mean, most everybody is bad. And even most everybody is bad most of the time. Even, even good writers mostly write not great stuff. But the, the quality really does not differ significantly at all. There's a different kind of discipline required to be, say, like Ethan, you know, 13 years into writing without any kind of formal training, without any sort of institutional support. So that that has its own rigor. And, and I, I don't think you can dismiss that. So quality is not the difference. I think if there is a big difference, it is that while the pedigreed poetry is no less likely to be bad, it is significantly less likely to be embarrassing. And I guess I mean that in a fairly specific way, that there is lots of very quietly, unremarkably, boringly bad MFA poetry. But it tends to be harder to point and laugh at. It tends to be less outrageously bad or less goofily bad. It tends to have less, it tends to, the problem tends to be less one of excess than of deficiency. And that is because an MFA, insofar as an MFA is, is especially insofar as it is rooted in workshops, that is a classroom in which much of the conversation consists of a sort of a round robin conversation uh, in which one student brings in work and all of the other students led by the professor comment on that work. What that results in, what an MFA consisting mostly of workshop classes amounts to is a poetry finishing school. That is, it, it sands off the rough edges. Sometimes people make a point about this and say, oh, well, MFAs produce inoffensive poems. That's, that's sure, that's some, somewhat true. But that's not, I think, the point because inoffensive poems are, are, or offensive poems are just as often bad as inoffensive poems. So just sanding off the rough edges isn't in itself a bad thing. It just means that you are more tuned into the etiquette of serious literary poetry. It means you are less likely to grossly embarrass yourself. But again, it doesn't mean you're any more likely to do good work. It just means that it will be easier to ignore rather than to snicker at, which is not really a great accomplishment. There are, you know, I've, I've in the past made up sort of tongue-in-cheek lists of rules for writing workshop appropriate poems for, for not getting made fun of by your workshop peers. You know, I, you could come up with the Ten Commandments for 
how to write a poem that people in workshop will take seriously and, and not laugh at. The, the problem with those lists, I think, is that there's too much that is arbitrary advice. Like, for example, quatrains are not cool. And, and I, don't, I don't just mean quatrains as in set, you know, sets of regular, metrically, metrically regular lines linked by rhyme. I, I mean quatrains as in any set of four lines bundled together among a bunch of other sets of four lines, free verse or otherwise, uh, because free verse poets often like to break up their poems into stanzas, even if they are not properly speaking stanzas. Uh, tercets were really, really cool for a while. Uh, single lines spaced out one at a time were really cool for a while. Couplets tend to stay more or less in fashion. And again, by couplets here, I don't mean even lines of the same metrical length that rhyme. I just mean pairs of lines blocked off on the page together. Quatrains, though, are really square. They're really dull. They're boring. They look nerdy. They don't look cool. And so if you want to write cool, hip workshop poetry, don't break your lines into quatrains. That's true, but it's also dumb advice because it doesn't matter. And I like, I think quatrains are great. I write in quatrains all the time. So fuck that. Instead, I thought I would offer a few sort of simple observations that I think actually are sort of right. That also, if you don't have an MFA, but you are submitting to magazines, then I have a list of suggestions for you that mostly have to do with approximating the polish that you do get from spending two or three years in an MFA. So uh, this is really just for poetry submissions for the most part, but I'll, I'll try to kind of rattle them off and not linger too long. And again, plenty of people who don't have MFAs already know all this shit. So again, there's not that big an, an, an advantage. Uh, and in some ways you, you might say you're better off uh, having, having some other sort of interesting job for two years. But he, here is, if you don't have an MFA and you are submitting to magazines and you're not totally sure how you might be at a disadvantage because you don't have an MFA, here's some very simple and very easily applied recommendations. First, don't offer explanations of your poems. For some reason, this is something people without MFAs tend to do a lot more often. Uh, it's also something I'll say much older writers tend to do, whether or not they have MFAs, though Though often for just historical reasons, they, they, they have masters, they have PhDs, they have something else. But don't offer an explanation of your poems. An editor does not want to read an explanation of your poems. He wants to read your poems. Uh, don't talk about not having an MFA. That doesn't mean you lie or you say you do, but don't include a whole sentence, two sentences, three sentences, all about how you are unqualified, that's ridiculous. Just don't say anything. Uh, keep your bio fact-based. That is, the bio is not really the place. You, know, you include a little biographical note with your submission very often, or you include a paragraph that kind of functions as a bio. Keep it fact. Just talk about things that are objectively true about your publishing history, about what you've done with conferences, where you've gone, if you've gone to a school, keep it fact-based and keep it short. This Don't uh, 
don't wax descriptive or emotional in this in this moment save that for the poems don't speak dismissively of yourself the, again people with mfas don't speak dismissively of, their, of themselves and though maybe they ought they ought to maybe i have that tendency it doesn't help you at all. And people without MFAs, in my experience, are much more likely to throw in some comments denigrating themselves right before asking you to read their poems. So just don't do that. Uh, oh, don't copyright your submission. So this is sort of specific, but don't put a little C in a circle on your submission and say, copyright 2021, Joe Green because what you actually are saying there is uh, you are not allowed to publish this <laughs> right? because it's it's copyrighted so don't do that if you want the editor to publish your poems don't copyright them and don't include a note threatening the, <laughs> threatening the editor or warning the editor not to plagiarize your poems the editor doesn't want to plagiarize your poems and and in the very rare case in which he does, he's going to plagiarize them anyway. So so don't, just including a weird warning like that just tends to irritate the editor. It doesn't really accomplish anything. And again, it's something I, I only ever see from people who don't have MFAs. More, once we're getting to the actual poems now, don't ever, this is the biggest giveaway I've ever seen. It immediately tells you what you're dealing with. It, it, nothing could more quickly guarantee that your poem will not get read. Again, I, I, I try to be pretty scrupulous in my own reading about ignoring bios, about just looking at poems, about trying to just really look at the text as the text as best I can. I'm certainly not perfect in that regard, and I know a lot of other editors don't even try. So the, the, the biggest fuck up you can commit that will immediately tell the editor that he should not read your poems is center justifying them. Again, doesn't happen that often, but good Lord, don't center justify your poems. On the same uh, note, choose a single simple font with serifs, with serifs, that is not courier. It doesn't have to be Times New Roman, though Times New Roman will do. Then a little, a little more, there's a little more nuance. Uh, and this is where I think that, that not in all cases, but, but there is at least a large number of cases in which people with MFAs tend to have been trained to be more nitpicky about their diction. So one very dumb MFA-ish rule of thumb for diction is if you are using a Latinate word, that is a word in English, the origin of which originally, the origin of which originally, for fuck's sake, the origin of which is Latin, if you are using a Latinate word, then pause and ask yourself if it has an Anglo-Saxon synonym. If it does have an Anglo-Saxon synonym, consider the synonym. Just, I, I had a teacher who said always use the Anglo-Saxon word. I, I don't think that's true. But consider the synonym. Consider the Anglo-Saxon 
version rather than the Latinate version. It tends to be a little more immediate. It tends to hit us with a little less cerebration for whatever reason. And at the very least, vary your diction between the Anglo-Saxon and Latinate words. All right, getting to the end now. The last very simple piece of advice I have for people who don't have MFAs is don't reply to rejections. Don't reply to rejections. If an editor rejects your work, don't reply. You can, if it was a personal rejection, you can write a very, very brief note saying, uh, thank, thank you. I'll, you know, I'll, maybe I'll try again. But don't, in general, an editor will never be sad that you didn't reply to a rejection unless he has actually requested something from you. He will never be sad that your response to a rejection was silence. And again, it, it's, it doesn't happen that often, but it, it tends to be mostly people without MFAs who, who see a rejection as an opportunity for the beginning of a, a new and lengthy correspondence. That is not what it is meant to be. The last note, and this is the one where I think it would be really satisfying for me, despite the years I've wasted in MFA programs, it would be really satisfying if I could boil down all of the qualitative difference between an MFA between MFA poetry and non-MFA poetry. If I, if I could boil it all down to a series of imperatives, to a series of rules of thumb, I would really like to be able to do that. The one that I think I, I can't really reduce in that way, and the one that, that is one of the biggest tells as well, though, though it, is, it is also probably the subtlest, is tone. Tone is the attitude that the voice of the poem shows toward its subject matter. It's different than the mood of the voice or the mood of the speaker. It's different than the register, which is the loftiness or, or, uh, or, or low common quality of the diction, of the syntax of the poem, uh, tone is, it communicates an enormous amount. And it's really tricky, as we all know from writing text messages and emails, it's really hard to convey all of the richness of conversational tone in text. And yet poetry, which is as much as anything, a, a, an evocation of a, a, a sincere and moving human voice, Poetry has to capture tone somehow. And people who have spent time in an MFA, I, I don't think that two or three years in MFA workshops will, will produce a mastery of tone. But I do think that it produces a heightened sensitivity to tone. An awareness of how easy it is to embarrass oneself with a tonal excess or a tonal false note. So again, I think that poetry by people with MFAs is not necessarily tonally impeccable, 
but it tends to be more tonally measured, even muted, and less often guilty of a gross tonal mismatch, just because that is one of the easiest ways to get laughed at in a room full of fellow MFA candidates. So once you've been laughed at for a tonal faux pas, you are a lot less likely to commit another one. That's really all it boils down to, but I can't give you a rule of thumb, of course, for using the right tone any more than you can tell a homeschool kid why it's a little weird that he speaks to the teacher in exactly the same manner that he uses when speaking to his classmates. It's just something you have to acquire over time. And that is one of the things I think an MFA can give you, is that sort of polish. But beyond that, oh, here's it's a one other little thing. And this is, I think, less often a problem, but, but it is one of the things that you just get hammered into you when you're in an MFA program. If you have heard a phrase, a, a long phrase, short phrase, happily ever after, tip of the tongue, a chill ran down his spine, long or short phrase. A, uh, if you have heard a phrase, a cluster of words, you've heard them before. If you've heard a phrase before, but you cannot identify where it comes from. Specifically, if you cannot identify a particular speaker, you could quote, and it doesn't even seem like there is a specific person you could quote. If you, have, if you know you've heard a phrase before, but you cannot put your finger on where it comes from, do not include that phrase in your poetry. Just leave it out. It is a received phrase. It is a pat phrase. It is like a patch of dead skin. And it, it just reduces the luster of the poem just that little bit and you see among mfa among poems by people with mfas there's mu there's much more slavering over diction and some of that is excessive and ridiculous but some of it is useful and that particular piece avoiding cliche, avoiding pat phrases, avoiding boilerplate, is a, that's a pretty good trained instinct. And it's one that, that it is worth acquiring on your own. Uh, I, I wanted to end this little correspondence section, and I'm not really sure exactly what I'll get into after this. I have a couple thoughts, and some of it I imagine I'll save for next week. But I want to end this, this little correspondence section with a note from my brother, who wrote in this is Daniel Smith, who, who drew the little skeleton smoking the cigarette, not spliff. He wrote in after, uh, or in response, he wrote it in a little later, but he wrote in response, wrote in, in response to the episode I did about poetry contests. And he, so he's been on a Vonnegut kick. He recently read uh, Cat's Cradle. He read Breakfast of Champions. And he... He sent me this uh, made-up Vonnegut word, and he told me to look it up because he thought it would it was uh, up my alley. So the word he sent was Baring Gaffner, B 
B-A-R-R-I-N-G hyphen G-A-F-F-N-E-R. It's a made-up word. It appears in Vonnegut's book, Breakfast of Champions. And the so in a number of Vonnegut's novels, he, he has a, a sort of a stand-in for himself named Kilgore Trout, who is a fictitious novelist who writes goofy sci-fi books. And this particular book, uh, in, in Breakfast of Champions, he summarizes one of his books. The book that he summarizes is called The Barring Gaffner of Banyalto or This Year's Masterpiece. And he, uh, he, he offers a, a description of, of what happens in this book or what the, the, the primary concept of the book is. And this is what Daniel thought was pertinent to the episode on contests and would tickle my fancy. And it did. So I, I, I'll just read this to you and then I have one quick thought about it. This is from Breakfast, Breakfast of Champions. This is a, a, sort of a, a brief synopsis of Kilgore Trout's non-existent novel, The Barring Gaffner of Banyalto. The name of the planet where Trout's book took place was Banyalto, and a Barring Gaffner there was a government official who spun a wheel of chance once a year. Citizens submitted works of art to the government, and these were given numbers, and then they were assigned cash values according to the Barring Gaffner's spins of the wheel. The viewpoint of the character of the tale was not the Barring Gaffner, but a humble cobbler named Goose. Goose lived alone, and he painted a picture of his cat. It was the only picture he had ever painted. He took it to the Barring Gaffner, who numbered it and put it in a warehouse crammed with works of art. The painting by Goose had an unprecedented gush of luck on the wheel. It became worth 18,000 Lambos, the equivalent of $1 billion on Earth. The Barring Gaffner awarded Goose a check for that amount, most of which was taken back at once by the tax collector. The picture was given a place of honor in the National Gallery, and people lined up for miles for a chance to see a painting worth a billion dollars. There was also a huge bonfire of all the paintings and statues and books and so on, which the wheel had said were worthless. And then it was discovered that the wheel was rigged, and the Barring Gaffner committed suicide. So it's a cute little, little cartoon, sort of a caricature of the prize system. I I, I will say I'm I'm uh, I'm all for Banyalto's uh, progressive taxation code. You know, if you get a check for a billion dollars, I, I I hope the government gets a, a, a hearty portion of that. But uh, you know, I, I think that the, the one place where this caricature is a, rings a little false is, is really just in the end. The, the, it's a scandal when it's discovered that the wheel is rigged and the, the Barring Gaffner commits suicide. That seems to me not at all right. I think, I think a slightly more accurate version of this little uh, satire would be one in which everything happens just as described, except... Everyone all along believes that the, the wheel is rigged. And, and even so, they still give out the money. They still bring their work to the wheel uh, the next year. And they still go line up to go see the, the billion-dollar work at the museum. They, they simultaneously know that it is 
rigged and to believe in it. That to me would be much closer to how the prize system today works. And I don't, I, I don't, I'm not so cynical as to think that it is rigged in a, a simple sense, but it is certainly not a meritocracy. And I think most of us both understand that. And yet we still have a certain awe for the big prizes. It does still feel like a big deal. And, and no, the boring gaffner would never commit suicide. He would just go off Twitter for a couple months and then come back. So I thank you, Daniel, for sending that in. That was delightful. And uh, I haven't read Vonnegut. I read uh, Mother Night recently. I reread Mother Night recently. But otherwise, I had not read bon Vonnegut in quite a while. And I can't even remember. I think I read Cat's Cradle when I was a, like a kid. Uh, but he's he is entertaining. So thank you, Cameron, Ethan, Daniel, and all of the anonymous raiders. Uh, not raiders, but raters who rated the show on Apple Podcast. That was really kind and thoughtful of all of you. I, I'm going to break off here and then I've been going a little longer than I expected, but maybe I'll, I'll come back and read a poem, let me talk about something. And I, I want to get into coherence and incoherence, though maybe some of that will have to, to wait till next week i've also i've been prepping a lot of really juicy interviews coming up and so probably those are going to start tumbling out soon enough but we shall see and quick note i may or may not leave this in i'm going on vacation this weekend i probably that means i won't have an episode out in time for next week but uh, I haven't really figured out what kind of rhythm to establish with this thing yet. So don't be, <laughs> don't be sad. You are not going to be sad. But it's possible that I won't have a show next week. I'll, I will try to have a show soon, though. And we'll just fucking see what happens. Listen to a little, little musical interlude, and then I will be back in just one moment. So I want to make one more quick note about Ben Lerner. Uh, just very briefly, I, I mentioned before that he had his last poetry book had come out in 2010, and so it I, I sort of assumed he'd walked away from poetry. That is not because waiting 10 years or 11 years to publish a book of poems is excessive. Not at all. Uh, the Joshua Megan, I think, waited 10 years before publishing his second book. I believe Mary Sybist did the same. Philip Larkin published a, roughly a book of poems every 10 years. Robert Hayden died at 67 and his collected is under 200 pages. Donald Justice died at 79 and his collected is under 300 pages, well under 300 pages. So no, a, a thriftiness, <laughs> a, a willingness to spare the reader, a restraint in publishing is not at all inadvisable. Uh, uh, Eliot, I think when asked if he had any advice for younger writers, he said, write less. I, I would just amend that to publish less. Horace said you should hold on to, you should write a poem. And then when you think you've really got it good, you've really got a good poem, you should wait nine years and then publish it if you still think it's good. I would be all for Ben Lerner waiting 10, 11 years between books of poems. The reason I said I thought that he had walked away from poetry at that point was that 
in the intervening 10 years, he wrote and published three novels. So that's it was really his own scale that gave me that impression. So uh, that settled. Uh, I, I want to uh, just quickly move on. It, I've realized I have gone on for quite a little while, and it is quite late, and I'm trying to go to bed earlier these days, <laughs> at least marginally. So uh, instead of reading a poem and talking about that, I thought I would just begin, or just introduce this problem or concept that I think I want to dig into a little more in the next week or two, partly because it's going to take a lot more than the few minutes I'm going to devote right now, and partly because I haven't figured it out all the way. I'm still thinking about it. I don't totally know what I... I don't, I don't really know where I come down on this question. So I, I just want to introduce this. There are a few articles and, and pieces of art I want to talk about, but I, I thought I would just start by discussing a, an article. This was originally published in New Literary History in uh, winter 1972. This is an article. Now, this was, I'm assuming this was, this was published somewhere else earlier in German, but this is the English version. This is called The Reading Process, A Phenomenological Approach by Wolfgang Iser, or Wolfgang Iser, however you want to pronounce it. So this article I, I read a number of years ago uh, during one of my <laughs> one of my stints in the MFA salt mines. And I, I thought, unlike most of the, the, the theory I read, or self-styled theory, literary theory, this, I thought, really accurately described reading. I have a, a, a minor obsession with the, the problem of defining reading. I have the suspicion that... So in, in school, you hear people talk about color, and how perceptions of color differ, and you know, how can I ever really know that your yellow is my yellow, and so on. And that has always struck me as a very boring question, partly because I'm slightly colorblind, so I already know my yellow varies, or more like more accurately, my my you know my, my red and green vary from yours. But uh, also just because there's not that much to yellow, so so who cares if it's a little different? Whereas I I, I tend to think that when people say reading, depending on who's talking or even what context he's talking in, I think the word reading means about five or six different things. I think that when some people say, I read this book, what they mean is something radically different from what I mean when I say I read this book or I read this poem, or so-and-so is illiterate. I think literacy, I think reading is a really poorly defined practice. And this article, I thought, does a, a pretty good job describing what reading is. I think like most literary theory, its real limitations come in the excessive in in excessive definition i think that the that it is a good description and it 
not content with a good description, Isair goes on to develop a mediocre system <laughs> of definition. So I, I think that the description part, though, is pretty good. So he, he breaks up a literary work into what he calls two poles, meaning that, you know, you have the, the text, the black squiggles on the white page, and then you have the reader. And when the reader and the text come together, there's a sort of a tug of war. So here, the literary work has two poles, which we might call the artistic and the aesthetic. The artistic refers to the text created by the author and the aesthetic to the realization accomplished by the reader. Part of Isaire's whole method of description is to identify the phenomenon of gaps or breaks in a text. You know, there are individual sentences, there are individual words, there are paragraphs, there are things described and things not described. There are, there are you know, descriptions that go only so far in a work. There are necessarily omissions. If you know the Borges story Funes the Memorias, then you know that uh, you know, there is always more detail you could fill in to the point at which you might as well uh, cover yourself in concrete because the, an actually thorough, an actually fully rendered verbal reality would be uh, infinite and uh, crippling and, and ultimately impossible to to read. So um, so Isaire is really interested in these gaps and he identifies a kind of spectrum. So here's here he talks about the 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 maybe the two extremes that a reader could be confronted with. If the reader were given the whole story, and there were nothing left for him to do, then his imagination would never enter the field. The result would be the boredom which inevitably arises when everything is laid out, cut, and dried before us. In this process of creativity, the text may either go may, may either not go far enough or may go too far. So we may say that boredom and overstrain form the boundaries beyond which the reader will leave the field of play. Boredom and overstrain. He, he spends less time here and throughout the article on that other extreme, mostly because I think this part of the unspoken function of this article is a sort of a defense of fragmentary art. So he, he seems to be confronting an idea that, that only uh, classical or traditionally structured novels or stories or poems are valid by, by suggesting that the gaps are part of what makes the work vital and, and uh, alive to the reader in the first place. So the, there's a, there's a, there's a, as uh, you know, th this this article in particular ends up being a um, a not 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 totally an apology for incoherence, but a a reframing. So that really, you know, he he identifies a number of different 
dimensions of this tug of war. He says that there is, a, you know, you have to read in time. You can't read an entire text all at once the way you can take in a painting all at once. You have to read it over time. So there's always a sort of a a throwing forward and a pulling back. You're always expecting, you're anticipating, and you're remembering what you've read, and you're you're sort of slowly adjusting your expectations. You're you're slowly bringing together your different impressions across time as you move forward through the text. You're also projecting sensory experiences onto the descriptions or the absence of descriptions given in the text. This is why you know he says uh, movies of beloved novels are often doomed not just because they're they must be interpreted perfectly but because any interpretation is going to shut down possibility whereas part of what in, inevitably readers loved about the novel was the ability to imagine without ever having that imaginary that, that without without ever having those images locked into place uh, and then he also um, talks about the the recognition and co-creation of a sort of a consistent pattern, what he calls the illusion building, that is part of what makes, uh, especially reading a novel, which is mostly what he's talking about here, sort of magical. So he, he talks in some detail about a number of different parts of this collaborative process between the reader and the writer. But the, the implicit response, say, to a claim, if I were to suggest to the, here I'm having my own tug of war with, with Isaiah in this article, the, the implicit response to my objection, say, to Ben Lerner's poem, which is that he took a bunch of material and jumbled it and didn't bother to create any kind of order, rhetorical, imagistic, lyrical, or otherwise, but just sort of left the the raw pieces of the IKEA sofa on the floor, and uh, or rather the, the the pieces of several different IKEA sofas <laughs> unassembled on the floor, and shrugged his shoulders and said, "Yeah, you know, poems uh, the poem goes uh, kind of in that direction. You you figure it out." So his objection to that might be that this is not just this is not really a a failure of a poem. It's just it just falls sort of toward one end of the spectrum. It is, the gaps are bigger rather than, you know, it is closer to being, it is closer to causing overstrain than boredom. And so there's not really any qualitative difference between this Ben Lerner pseudo poem and say uh, Sonnet 18. The difference is just that one fills in more of the gaps and one leaves more of the gaps wide open. I, so I recognize that argument and yet there's part of me that just intuitively resists it. And I think it's, it's maybe the same part that recognizes Jonathan Farmer's very good counsel in saying, well, why ever, why, why, why would, why would you ever bother to dismiss a poem when surely somebody could find something in it to enjoy. And, and, I, and again, I recognize the wisdom of that, but I also resist it partly because, in, I mean, I think it's, it is a different thing when you're talking about somebody who is very celebrated. I think dismissing or, or speaking ill of poetry by 
people nobody has ever heard of, I think that is truly pointless and, and maybe cruel. But I think that there is a there is maybe a qualitative difference. It, it may not. I think I think my instinct is that this is not just a question of where the poem falls on the spectrum. It's not just a question of hey, you know, uh, there's no accounting for taste. I think that there is something actually missing from poems like Learners. And that is what I, I have some ideas. And I think Isaire has more to say on the subject. I'm going to get, I want to talk a little more about this article in uh, episodes to come. But I, you know, I thought I would just sort of pose that, that problem. That there's a there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for why a lot of poems seem to seem a little incoherent or seem insistently, artfully, even smugly, one might say, incoherent. There's a perfectly reasonable expl explanation for that with a perfectly respectable German phenomenologist behind it. And yet, ah, my instinct is that there's there's a little more there, or rather there's a little less there in the case of poems like this. But that is, that's going to be, I'm going to call it there because it's, it's, it's late. Uh, this has been a little bit of a, a, a miscellany as an episode, but I'm going to keep uh, going with this thing. I think there are going to be some more miscellaneous episodes and that's going to be the only way that it's, you know, I think that's going to be the only way both to be able to keep digging into these things uh, week after week. And it's the only way, I think, really to be uh, to be honest about the incomplete nature of these fucking questions. So this has been Slee Ricketts. Thank you so much for listening. You can always reach me at sleericketts at gmail.com. And this, I'll say, I'll say this with a little more uncertainty than I usually do. With any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. <laughs> <laughs>